Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Islam for Christians, episode 69. Biblical Figures in Islam, part 9. Jonah and the Minor Prophets. For those of you who are Christians or Jews, you've probably heard the term Minor Prophets. The Minor Prophets are attached to 12 books in the Bible, each of which is relatively short compared to the Major Prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. So they're just minor in the sense that they're short. They didn't write much. They're not minor in stature or importance. Their stories are just shorter. Really, that's it. That's the distinction. Now, because the distinction is just based basically on story length, a lot of people tend to forget that Jonah is one of the minor prophets. It just doesn't usually seem like he is, because for a minor prophet, he's a pretty big name. And in Christianity, the reason for that, the reason he's kind of punches above his weight, so to speak, that mainly has to do with his memorable story. Because few people forget the story of someone who was swallowed by a giant fish. It's great stuff. You know, not only was he swallowed by that fish, he came out. He lived. It's also a very interesting story for children. So it's a regular in you know Sunday school and Christian children's education. If you give the names of the 12 minor prophets to the average person, you know, just say, oh, hey, how many of these people do you know? Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. The odds are pretty good they will recognize just one. Jonah, because he's the guy in the whale, or the fish, or whatever. The Hebrew just says giant fish, so whatever, it could be a marl, it could be whatever you want it to be. Just take your pick of giant fish species, or giant water mammals. The ancients had no idea that whales were mammals like us, so the fact that whales are not actually fish really has no bearing on the meaning of this story in ancient Hebrew. It's just something large that swims. That would probably be the best translation. Jonah ended up in something very, very large that lives in the water. So Jonah, pretty much based on only a cool narrative and little else. Jonah is the major minor prophet in the Bible. And funny enough, the same is true in Islam and in the Quran. Islam loves Jonah too. And for pretty much the same reasons, you know, it's, a great story is a great story. And Jonah is the only one of the 12 minor prophets mentioned in the Quran. The other 11 are never mentioned. Now, that's not to say the Quran disbelieves these prophets or, you know, is trying to give them the shaft or anything. The main reason they're probably not in the Quran is simply limited space. The Bible is about five times longer than the Quran. And the Quran was only written by one person. It's a heavy lift. So the Quran will, just due to raw math, have less information than the Bible. And it's not really a book of stories. I mean, it is, but the Quran doesn't tell stories just to relay information. It is usually part of a sermon, but it's pretty hard to find a point that can be made by using Joel, for example when a far better known prophet could be used to deliver the same point. 
And the Quran doesn't name all the prophets it professes either. Now, as I've noted before, everyone gets a prophet. You know, that's an almost countless list of languages and peoples over the years. And that is a list known only to God. So Jonah is the greatest of the minor prophets. And not only is Jonah not a minor prophet in Islam, you know, he is a major one in that Surah 10 of the Quran is named after him. And that's not a short Surah. It's 109 lines. In the Surah of Jonah, or Yunus, as he's known in Arabic, it's a pretty typical Quranic sermon. And it emphasizes, well, among other common themes like worship God and be mindful of the coming afterlife, obviously huge themes in the Quran over and over and over and over again. It also mentions many times in this surah that everyone has been sent a messenger. Everyone. So on that theme, this idea that everyone gets a messenger, the surah starts to talk about Noah and Moses and Aaron. And then it gets to Jonah at the very end. Ayat, that's a verse, so Ayat 98 out of 109 is when Jonah is finally mentioned. And at last we get the person that the story is named after. And Jonah is mentioned as an example of the rare community that actually listens to its prophet. Just think about it. That doesn't happen very often. Nineveh repented after Jonah went back. This is not normal because usually they ignore the prophet. And then God just lays the smack down on the offending community, be him Sodom, Gomorrah, whoever. And this is where we see an Islamic parallel and a possible reason for the Islamic affinity for Jonah. You know, even more than it just simply being a spectacular story. Remember that Muhammad was rejected in Mecca which was not only the town he was supposed to preach to, but it was also his home. He was rejected, and then he came back. Muhammad was eventually accepted in Mecca, but really only after he came there with an army. You know, so it's a bit different than Jonah. But still, both did come back after a short exile. And you see this Muhammad-like treatment of Jonah like a man leaving his home after being rejected, rather than as a foreigner entering hostile territory. Now, that does not mean that the Quran is saying Jonah is from Nineveh, of course. It was the capital of Assyria and unlikely to be the home of any Hebrew prophet. But it kind of gives the impression in the way that the story is told, you know, that it's very Muhammad-like. Maybe there's similarities here. Let me give you uh, another mention of Jonah here. This is Surah 21, verses 87 to 88. And remember when the man of the whale stormed off from his city in a rage, thinking we would not restrain him. Then in the veils of darkness, he cried out, There is no God worthy of worship except you. Glory be to you. I have certainly done wrong. So we answered his prayer and rescued him from anguish. And so do we save the true believers. So Jonah leaves home, and then he comes back covered in whale vomit. Muhammad comes back to his home 
with half the Arabian Peninsula behind him. A little different. But in the end, I suppose both achieved similar results. But note the word of the use, rage, there. This is important both in the biblical and the Islamic narrative. Jonah was angry. It says, and remember when the man of the whale stormed off from his city in a rage. In a rage. One common misconception in the story of Jonah is that he didn't go to Nineveh because he was afraid to go. God told him, he's like, no, no, they're going to kill me. You know, uh, I don't want to go because of that. I'm scared. But that's not true. <laughs> in both the Christian and Islamic versions, Jonah is not afraid. Jonah is angry. Jonah is full of hate for the people of Nineveh. But the reason Jonah hates these people is a bit different in each telling. Now, in most tellings, the Islamic version of Jonah, Jonah is already in Nineveh. It starts with him there. He's preaching. He's unsuccessful, and he hates those people so much, he decides to give up and leave them to their fate. Now, God thinks he should keep trying, or Allah in this case, so the shipwreck happens when he leaves Nineveh. But in the biblical version, Jonah is fleeing God, not Nineveh. He hates Nineveh. He hated them when God ordered him to go there for patriotic reasons, let's say. Maybe he's a, a nationalist, so to speak. He hated them when God mentioned them. And even after he preached to them, he still hated them. And why did he hate them? <laughs> he hated them even more because they actually repented and they weren't going to be destroyed. So this was the idea in his head was, I don't want to preach the word of God to these people. I want them to be ignorant of God so that God will destroy them. I want them to continue to do these wicked things so God will obliterate them. Now, in the end, the result is the same. Jonah is swallowed by the whale, the fish, or whatever, and he ends up in Nineveh. Now, the Quran clearly treats this story, this story of Jonah, as a known entity, a known story. And the Quran contains the most succinct summary of the story of Jonah you will ever see. This is the Quran, Surah 37, verses 139 to 148. And Jonah was indeed one of the messengers. Remember when he fled to the overloaded ship? Then to save it from sinking, he drew straws with other passengers. He lost and was thrown overboard. Then the whale engulfed him while he was blameworthy. Had he not constantly glorified Allah, like inside the whale, he would have certainly remained in its belly until the day of resurrection. But we cast him onto the open shore, totally worn out, and caused a squash plant to grow over him. We later sent him back to his city of at least 100,000 people who then believed in him. So we allowed them enjoyment for a while. So again, like so many biblical stories in the Quran, it's referring back to a known story. It's referencing it, not really retelling it. And in that telling, there really is no contrast with the biblical story. 
it corroborates all the key parts and as few words as possible. You know, there's Jonah as a prophet. He boards the ship. It's having problems. They draw lots. He's thrown overboard. The whale swallows Jonah. He repents, knowing he would otherwise die in there. And he ends up on the shore. The plant is slightly out of order there. Because in the Bible, I think the plant was after he had preached to Nineveh and they had repented. You know, God shields him from the sun with a plant and as he had left the city, hoping God would destroy it anyway. But, and of course, the biblical Jonah's attitude is so bad that God takes the plant away. You know, because, like I said, the biblical Jonah really, really hated those people. The biblical Jonah is mad, of course, that they accepted his prophecy. So his success is what has him upset. You know, he was hoping they would reject him, which is an underappreciated but fascinating bit of the biblical story. But, in the Quranic version, the plant shields him on the beach after he left the whale. And then he goes to Nineveh to preach. And the people of Nineveh believe him and do what they're supposed to do. There's one other element to Jonah in Islam that I should mention here. You know, usually I'm talking about sources from the Quran or the Hadith and the parallels between biblical figures and Islamic figures that are referenced in the Quran or the Hadith. But in this case, one of the strongest things that intermix here in the stories that intertwine the biblical and the Islamic Jonah, it actually comes from a historical event, or at least one told by Muslim historians. Whether secular historians believe this is really beside the point. The key here is that it's Islamic. And it involves Jonah, a Christian, and Muhammad. This is the story of Muhammad at his lowest point, after the year of sorrow, after the death of his uncle and the death of his wife, when the story of Jonah, in a very real and tangible way, and in the form of a Christian believer from Nineveh, like the city, the city, the Nineveh, this person provides him solace and hope. So at this point in history, after the year of sorrow, Muhammad goes off to look for a new home. And he chose the nearest city, Taif, which is about 100 kilometers southeast of Mecca, so 60 miles. Of course, that shows you how sparse the settlements are in this part of Arabia. I think because you just have to set up wherever an oasis can be found. You know, where you put a city isn't really a choice. It's where the oasis is. It seems the only reason Taif was chosen was because of its proximity. You know, not because he had some special hope for these people, Muhammad, that is. He had no reason to believe that they would be more receptive to his message than anybody else. So he went, along with his adopted son, Zaid. So right away, he at least had a chance because Muhammad managed to get an audience with three prominent tribal leaders in this city. But unfortunately for him, it didn't really go that well. Muhammad and Zaid were basically stoned out of town, taking refuge in an orchard. And it was an orchard that was owned by some people from his tribe, the Quraysh. So these Quraysh people, taking pity on Muhammad, the owner sent a slave to go and give him grapes. 
And this slave just happened to be a Christian. And a Christian slave from Nineveh, of all places, home to the famous Jonah from the Bible. Now, the slave told him this. He told him where he was from. And to his surprise, you know, as a Christian, you know, he wasn't used to hearing biblical stories from Arabs. But Muhammad was able to tell him all about Jonah. And this must have come as a bit of a shock. So despite his failure with the pagans of Taif, Muhammad was able to make at least one conversion out of this Christian slave. He got him to accept Islam. That's the story. And in the Islamic version of this, this conversion may have, <laughs> not for sure, but it's almost kind of partially implied that this conversion may have saved Taif from being destroyed because Muhammad left town. But before he left for good, he was presented with an offer, or perhaps you could call it a temptation, because an angel comes to Muhammad and offers to destroy the town, to collapse the nearby mountains onto Taif and destroy it. Now, Muhammad declined. Why did he do this? Well, partially he was probably in a good mood, but it just would have been bad form. So it could have been a temptation. It might have been a test from God. But he actually had a rational point as well. Now, this was his reasoning for saying no. Now, these people did not convert to Islam, but one of them did. You know, and if left alive, perhaps their children will turn to Islam, you know, to listen to his ministry and their children and their children's children and so on. And, of course, he was right. <laughs> In the end, if you, historically, because Taif has produced 1,400 years worth of Muslims. If you look at the city's current population, which is about 700,000, probably all Muslims, Saudi Arabia, I'm almost sure that's the case, that's quite a return on investment. So, you know, in sort of soul finance, so to speak, it was a smart move. So... Whether using the Islamic or the biblical version of Jonah, this story makes Muhammad look like a better prophet than Jonah. Not that Muhammad would say that. I've actually seen hadiths where Muhammad is specifically telling people that he should not be called greater than Jonah. Because his people probably saw this parallel too. Muhammad had the same experience of rejection in Taif that Jonah had in Nineveh. But how did he respond? I would say in a very Christian manner. He forgave them and did not take vengeance, even when it was offered by an angel. And the fact that Muhammad runs into someone from Nineveh during this process absolutely cannot be a coincidence. Whether you consider it to be a divine coincidence or just good storytelling, or perhaps both at the same time, it certainly makes for a great story. And that's important. That's how Jonah came to be Jonah. It's what got him into the Quran in the first place. It's why everyone knows Jonah and the whale, but not Habakkuk and the Chaldeans. It may even be how, jo how Jonah got Sword 10 named after him, despite being mentioned only one time. And at the end, you know, he is Jonah, is the major minor prophet in Christianity and in Islam.
But in Islam, as with most Old Testament prophets, Jonah does come off far better than the version of that prophet in the Bible. This is a theme you may have noticed. The biblical Jonah has a somewhat unceremonial ending. You know, in the end, he's basically bickering with God and telling him that he wants to die. Contrast that with the Islamic Jonah, who lived a tranquil life with the Ninevites, all 100,000 of them. And he was content that he had done what God had commanded him to do, which isn't bad for a minor prophet. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah. Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.